as we hear the word of the Lord. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, brother as I regard him, have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with this kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shelby. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this day, this beautiful uh, Sunday, uh, day that we gather, um, just like so many people around the world gather to, um, to worship, gather for um, being in community with one another and coming into your presence together. And so we thank you for that opportunity that so many don't have, and so we're grateful. We're grateful for this place and um, the provision of, of space to meet, and we're um, our hearts are, are full knowing that, um, that the cross is powerful, that through the cross that you um, have redeemed us, that through your resurrection you have paved the path for us also uh, to be resurrected. So we thank you for that. And we pray now as we read your word that you would um, shine light uh, into our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. So I have to... I think I have to confess some sin here for this week. So this is the last Sunday of our First Peter series. I think it's 21. I went back and counted quickly, so I could have been wrong. But kind of, I think 21 sermons, and you get to the end of a, of a sermon series that's through a book of the Bible, and it's 21 sermons long, and so it's been like four or five months. And so there was this kind of desire in me to kind of summarize and, and recap you know, give you some nice little uh, little tidbits. Maybe they would have been alliterated. Uh, beautiful slogans that you can put up, like, on the dashboard of your car or whatever. And, and you're like, my pastor said that. And, uh, you know, I like good, clean thinking as much as the next person. And so that was kind of my desire. I think I had some mixed motives. And I went back and I read First Peter all the way through this week as I was just kind of processing through what we what we have learned looking at the old sermons. And as I read through it, front to back, which, if, by the way, if you've never done that, if you've never read a whole letter front to back, I highly encourage it. And it's even better if you can find someone to read it out loud to you. Not like Audible or something, but like a little person that you know reading it out loud to you. It's, it seems like a simple thing, but I think I've, I can count on, my, on one hand how many times that I have done that, and I can remember very distinctly those experiences because they're so powerful to read scripture out loud in large chunks. So anyway, do that sometime. But I read back through it and I looked back through our sermons and as I read and as I looked at the sermons, I was not impressed by, uh, what was impressed upon me as I did that was not the, all of the things that we said, all of the, the beautiful faithful presence things, all of the ecclesiology things. What was most impressed upon me actually was the things that we didn't cover Right, I saw all the things we didn't talk about, right? There's a, there's a, a, in chapter two, there's a verse about how people had sinned as they were destined to do. I didn't say a single thing about that. 
And then I came across a verse in chapter 3. There's well, a husbands and wives passage, and the last verse in that is husbands are supposed to you know, be, be loving and caring for their wives so that it doesn't inhibit their prayers. It's like, wow, I didn't even, I didn't even remember that that was a verse in this book I just preached through. There's two passages about the chief shepherd. We really didn't talk about those. And the more I read, the more I was like, I don't, there's all this stuff we didn't say. And the more I tried to figure out how am I going to kind of put this in a nice little concise package to give you as the like the little crowning jewel of our series, the more I realized that the Bible as a whole, and this book in particular, resists that. It resists this desire that I think we have to kind of slice and dice it to kind of summarize it and neatly package it and be like, here's the, here's the four things that you need to know. And we're just like, come to it, like, tell me what I need to know, tell me the bottom line, tell me what I'm supposed to do. And it resists that so strongly that 21 sermons later, and I'm just like, I, I'm overwhelmed by the weight of the things that we could have said about it but didn't, rather than the things that we, we did say. And I've had this struggle my whole life with the book of Psalms. You go to the book of Psalms and you read it, and I'm, I'm sort of a linear thinker, a logical thinker, a deductive reasoning thinker, and I get to the Psalms, I'm like, what, what is this about? And so like, for 18 years of my life, I hardly ever read the Psalms because I, like, I have no idea what to do with this because it doesn't, doesn't neatly break down into a nice little applicable point. And so I sort of sheepishly, I think, went back to 1 Peter chapter 5, and I thought, well, there's three verses left that I hadn't covered um, in the original breakdown of the text, I didn't give these three verses their own sermon. Um, but some things changed, and I ended up giving them three, uh, their own sermon. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know what's in these verses. So I went back and I read them um, to maybe let Peter go out on his own terms rather than, than on my terms. Um, and what I found reading this, these three verses was something that I did not expect to find and something that is, I think, profound. Um, so the tension of this sermon is my own issue with this sermon. So we'll let it be at that. We're going to read these three verses, and I want to draw your attention to one specific thing and the point that I think Peter is making about why he wrote this letter. I'm going to read them again because they're short. He says, by Silvanus, who's really Silas, you, you know Silas, Paul and Silas, friends with Peter and a leader in the church, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, Briefly, you can debate that. Briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, there's some interesting things there. This is closing remarks, like you would do any closing letter. You kind of have you throwing a bunch of stuff together. Paul does this all the time. And there's things we could talk about. There's Silas, and there's a huge scholarly debate over whether Silas wrote this letter himself. Like, Paul, Peter told Silas, and Silas wrote it down, or whether this means Silas is delivering the letter. It doesn't really matter. We're not going to talk about that. Then there's the issue of Babylon. You're like, why is Babylon in here? There's a whole issue we could talk about with that. Babylon is a New Testament sort of image for the evil empire, as it were, if you've, you know Star Wars, so you know the evil empire. So he's not actually in Babylon. He's probably in Rome, and he's using Babylon to refer to Rome as, remember he called them sojourners and aliens, and he's sort of reminding them that, hey, I'm in Rome with all these Christians, and I'm still not at home because I'm actually in Babylon. So he's, there's that thing going on there. And then you have the whole kiss of love, which we could talk about, um, regard, sort of represented here by our passing of the peace. Right? It's a little thing. We don't think about it, but think, of, think about what, what our church service would look like if we didn't do that. You take that away, Peter's basically just saying, like, show the affection that this deserves to one another. So there's a lot of different things here. But I want to focus on verse 12, the second half 
of verse 12, where he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Exhorting, you know what exhorting is? Is when he's like saying, do this, giving you instruction, telling you what to do. And then he says, declaring, which the underlying word there is the word witness. It's the verb for to bear witness. It's like giving testimony in a courtroom. So really, Peter earlier, earlier in this chapter even, calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And now he's saying that throughout this letter, he has bared witness. He has given testimony, the ESV translated as declared. So what is it that he is declaring? Well, if you stop and think about, we didn't spend a lot of time on Peter himself, but think about Peter. If you've read the New Testament, you know about Peter. Shows up in a lot of stories in the New Testament. Right? Peter was... A disciple of Jesus. He walked, like literally walked with Jesus all over Israel. He, he confronted Jesus one time. I mean, consider that. Peter confronted God himself. He, re, he refused to be served by Jesus. Remember the, the washing of the feet where he's like, hey, you're not going to do that to me. That was Peter. Right? He defended in the garden where he cuts off the guy's ear and then three hours later, five hours later, he betrays Jesus by not, not betrays him the same way Judas betrayed him, but betrays him by saying he doesn't know him. Peter is in the mix with Jesus. He's been there. He's, he's been through the entire thing. He walks on water to Jesus. He's there in Gethsemane with Jesus, falling asleep. He runs to the tomb to find the tomb empty. Remember, he just saw Jesus crucified, and then three days later, he runs to the tomb, and he's the one that goes in and is like, uh, nobody's here. Then he sits on a beach and he eats fish with with the resurrected Jesus. This guy's been through it with Jesus. He knows him. He touched him. He shook hands with him. He hugged him. He was there. He is an eyewitness. There's nobody maybe besides John that had a more front row seat to the life of Jesus than Peter, who's writing this letter to us. And there's no, there's, in ancient Israel, there's no, like Twitter, Right, like right now, there's eyewitness stuff means very little now because like you and I can be eyewitnesses to everything around the world on Twitter 30 seconds after it happens. And so the, the proliferation of news means this idea of someone being an eyewitness to something is sort of downgraded. We don't realize that if there is no Twitter, if there is no internet, if there is no freedom of the press, there's only one way to know about things that you didn't see for yourself, and that's to talk to somebody who did see it. That's Peter. He's an eyewitness to the entire life of Jesus. But there's nothing in Peter's life that's more transformational, more impactful to him than one specific instance. And that is when he goes up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured into this um, something that looks like not human. Okay, turn over to Second Peter. Just turn your, if you have your Bible open, turn it over one page of your phone. Pull it up. I want, you to, I want you to hear this, what Peter says, and we're going to look at two different sections of it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16, where Peter writes this second letter, and he, says, and he, and he writes this to, to the people who are receiving the second letter, and he says, for we, and he's talking about himself and the other apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, 
And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's a pretty strong claim to the authority that Peter has in seeing and experiencing Jesus. So that's what he's bearing witness to, is that this, this whole thing of experience that he has. And so he says, I've been exhorting and declaring to you that. And then this next part of the sentence is the part that has, was like stuck in my head this entire week as I processed this. It says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I'm like, what, what is this? What, what are you talking about? Right? If I come in here and I'm like, this is a beautiful person. You're like, who? And I'm like, this, Lem, is a beautiful person, right? A relative pronoun needs an antecedent. It needs to be pointing to something. So when we read, this is the true grace of God, we have to ask ourselves, what is this? Like, as I'm, I probably shouldn't say this. As I'm processing this this week, I felt like Bill Clinton. It, it uh, what is it? It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. I'm listening to a podcast on the Nixon and the Clinton impeachments in the midst of other impeachments. And this word matters. What is this referring to? Well, if we, in general, you're, I've written to you briefly that this is the true grace of God. And our assumption, I think, our general assumption about this verse would be that he's saying, he's talking about the letter content. Saying what I've written to you, the things that I have said in this letter are the true grace of God. Right, that's how you would read it? Is that how you're reading it? Like the, thing, the stuff I just wrote, it's true. You sign off a letter, you're like, hey, by the way, the stuff that I just wrote is true. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, I think that's part of what he means. But the more I pondered it, the more I think that there is a deeper and more profound something at work in what Peter is saying. Listen to the next two verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. Right? He just said in 2 Peter chapter 1 that he was on the mountain. Then he says this, and we have, again, meaning the apostles, specifically him and John who are up on the mountain, we have the prophetic word, which is the Old Testament, the prophecies about Jesus. We have the the prophecies about Jesus more fully confirmed. Okay, so he's saying that he, Peter, has the Old Testament prophecies, but they're more confirmed for him because of this experience that he had on the mountain. And then he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that what he is testifying to is backed by the same kind of authority that the Old Testament is backed by. He's saying that because of his experience with Jesus, the prophetic word of the Old Testament is even more confirmed in him, and now he's going to turn around and testify to us, to these people, about that reality. And he's saying that he is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, how much of that in the moment did Peter fully understand? I don't, I don't know. 
But I'm convinced that when he comes to the end of Second, First Peter chapter 1 and he says, this is the true grace of God, he's referring both to the letter content and to the letter itself. Like th- here's the example. If I brought you a picture of my dog and I said, this is my dog, am I telling the truth? Yes, okay, let's assume it is my dog. I bring you a picture of my dog, and I can legitimately say, this is my dog. It's representing its content about my dog. But if I brought in my dog itself, and my dog is on a leash, and I said, this is my dog, do you see the difference between those two things? I think what Peter is saying is more like the second thing. The actual true grace of God is in the text that he's writing. He's, he's declaring and exhorting and witness, bearing witness to the reality of the confirmed prophetic word. And you're like, why, why does this matter? Well, he says that we would do well to pay attention to such prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Look, You were not there. I was not there. We didn't talk to Jesus. We didn't shake his hand. We didn't eat fish with him. Peter even says at the beginning of his letter, you don't see him. You haven't seen him. You don't see him now. And you're not going to see him in the very near future. You don't see him. How do you experience the reality of the resurrected Jesus without seeing him? Peter says, it's right here in this letter. This is the true grace of God. This is why it's so hard to box this up into some cool little go and do this now sayings and slogans because this is the true grace of God. It's not just a picture of the thing. It is the thing itself being conveyed to us through the word of God. You see, for God, words are very, very, very important. John calls Jesus the word. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and the word was God. God's words are active and they accomplish things. It's like when, when you go to a marriage ceremony and, the, and the, the person that's officiating says, by the power vested in me, and then they say some words, those words do something. That's how God is. When God speaks, something happens. When Jesus goes somewhere, something happens. And Peter is connecting the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus to his letter. This is the true grace of God, that words are not just words with God. We can't just read this as information. It's information, it's truth in sort of an abstract form, but then it's also this personal, active work of God that's reaching out towards us. The true grace of God being that Jesus came in the flesh, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, died, rose again, and was ascended into heaven, what we say in the creed every week. And Peter's like, hey, I was there, and I'm wanting you to, to, to have this because this is the true grace of God. Does that make sense? That, that makes going through here and like trying to summarize it, trying to like neatly package it and just set it aside as if you learned something, it, that's not what this is about. This isn't about just learning something. It is the true grace of God. So what does that matter? Why do we care about that? Well, I think the next sentence, Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. See, Peter's not, uh, he's not, uh, he doesn't not know about about the sacrifices and the suffering and the difficulties of life. Remember, he started off the letter by saying, hey, you people who feel like sojourners and aliens, 
The entire letter we know, we've heard this over and over, is about sacrifice and selflessness and suffering over and over and over. He's speaking to these people that are troubled, that have the, the, the difficulty of not seeing Jesus and yet wanting to follow him. And Peter says, how are we going to do that? And he goes, this is the true grace of God. I, my testimony is poured out to you just like the prophetic word right here in this letter. Right? We experience all of this. We have politicians that lie, and we, we have sorrow, and we have anxiety disorders. We have miscarriages. We have divorces. Like, all of us in this room have experienced these things. Like, this is being an alien, not being at home. It's difficult. It's hard. It's, it, it hurts. And then all of that comes into this room where we center our entire worship around the Word and the table, which is the Word, the Word, capital Word, Jesus presented in Word, and the Word, capital Jesus presented in pictures. We center our entire worship service around that because we believe that this is the true grace of God to meet all of those needs that arise out of those difficulties, right? Some of us need to be prodded into action. Like some of us in this room, some of us, are tend, we tend to just sit around and do nothing, and we need the Word of God to come off the page, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, to say, get up and do something. Some of us need to be comforted in suffering and pain. Some of us need to be confronted with our sin. Some of us need to be just reminded, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to be called back to reality. Like We bring all these difficulties in, and that creates a plethora of different needs. And you know what we need? We need one thing, the true grace of God. And Peter says, this is the true grace of God. What we need is not, it's not philosophical abstractions. You don't need like me to get out here in philosophy land. Those things are fine. That's not what we need at a base level. We don't need some moral code, just do these 10 things right and then you'll be fine. We don't need that stuff. We don't need quick fixes and cute slogans, right? This is why to me, this, um, the book that was on the bestseller list last year, Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel, that's why this is so offensive to me because it's saying it's taking this and it's turning it into three or four little things that you can do to just fix your life. That's not how it works. You need to stay connected to the true grace of God, which you can't have without his word. Him, Jesus himself, who's not here in the flesh, and so we need a way to connect to him, and that's by his word through his spirit. Like you, We need it, not like we need the instruction manual for our Ikea furniture. Like If you take Ikea furniture out of the box, you like, it's a pile of nothing. And the directions are basically a pile of nothing. But you need them because you can't put it together without them. It's just like a bunch of nothing. So you need the instructions because you need it to tell you how to work this. That's not how we need that. We need the true grace of God like we need a doctor. We don't need a doctor. When my kids had strep and my wife had strep and I had strep all in the last 10 days, and we go to the doctor, what we don't need is the doctor to tell us how antibiotics work. We need the actual antibiotics. He shows me a picture and be like, this is antibiotics. It's like, I don't care. I need the pill to say, this is antibiotics, right? So I can put it in my mouth so it can stop my disease. What we need is the true grace of God. Like God gives himself through his word, the Bible. One author I was reading this week, it's been a Lutheran pastor for 50 years, says, 
that in Scripture, in the Word, little w word, which is this, opens up his heart. God opens up his heart to us so that we can see what kind of God we have, how he may be addressed, and how he may be accessed here in the world, and how we can receive his gifts for our forgiveness, life, and salvation. Then he says this, whenever we apply the word of God, we have a tiger by the tail. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's book and it throbs with life and vitality. You see the difference? If I have the picture of my dog and I'm like, this is is my tiger. If I have a picture of my tiger, I'm like, hey, this is my tiger. You're like, okay. But if I have a tiger and I have it by the tail, I'm like, this is my tiger. You're like, whoa, that's a tiger. That's how, we're, that's how we should approach this thing, this thing, <laughs> this word that God uses through his spirit. Someone, someone said, we don't use scripture, it uses us. It's interesting, it's a, it's a flexible word, so you can't draw too much meaning from it, but it is interesting that the word I have written, the verb right there is grapho, it's the same Greek word graphe, which is the word used for scripture in the New Testament. Like, we come to a letter, we can choose to, like, slice and dice it up and pick and choose what we want to listen to and what we want to read and which ones, which verses we want to put as our little reminders. Or we can approach it as the very grace of God coming through the pages by the Holy Spirit to us about and for Jesus. And all of those things, all of those burdens, all of those difficulties, there's no way to easily fix them besides connecting and receiving the true grace of God. One author says, the heaviest burdens, the most intense sorrows, the most heart-rending losses, all of these meet their match in the life-giving word of God and his sacraments. They're not magic. These sacred tools don't make the heartache vanish overnight, but they do bring lasting and eternal healing over time despite the obstacles. That's what we believe coming into this room, opening up the text. That's why we preach from this book and not some other book every single week. Because in it we believe that is the tr- this is the hope of the gospel right here. This is the way to be healed. And so when he says stand firm, this isn't a top-down order. This is like an invitation. Come into the doctor's office. <laughs> Allow him to administer to you the true grace that you need. And yet we so, so often just stand apart, don't we? You're like, I know, I know it just as well as you do that we often see this as a burden or a schedule or a, I, I just haven't read my Bible enough. Maybe it's too common to us. But when we come to it by faith, the Holy Spirit is there. It's a tiger. It will bite you in a good way, like shoot you with an antibiotic. I don't know, whatever metaphor you need for that. So, we call this series Faithful Presence. Because as believers, we have to be present in the world, but we need to be faithful to God's call. And I, and I get to the end of the book, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And I say there's only one way that we are ever going to be faithfully present in the world, and that is by receiving the true grace of God, the true grace of the capital W word, Jesus, through his word, the Bible.
As we receive it, we will be transformed to walk out faithful. There's no little checklist. Faithful presence isn't a checklist. It's not 21 sermons that you can just be like, did that, did that, did that. It's an ongoing way of living where we are receiving and then passing out the true grace of God, inviting others into the experience of receiving that. So don't walk away. I'm asking you not to walk away from this study of 1 Peter and sort of just put it on the shelf and be like, yeah, I learned a few things. That was good. I went, I did my undergrad in electrical engineering. It was useless to me now, I think. Most of what I learned is on the shelf. Like I have stacks of things I learned. Lots of information. Lots of great, great truths about the world. It doesn't make any difference to me. Like it's not something, it's not something that you can learn and then set aside. It's, 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 it's living and active, says, Tim, says Paul to Timothy. We can't engineer faithful presence. We have to be walking in the Spirit by being connected to the true grace of God through His Word. So are you doing that? If you're not, let's, let's talk. Do you need other people? Do you need, what, what help do you need to be connected? This is, this is the greatest need that you have, to be connected to the true grace of God. And it's truly, truly grace. It's boundless, it's free, it's transforming, it's life-giving, it's eternal. We need it. We need to be connected to it constantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for ordaining Peter to write down on scrolls, on whatever he used to write, to testify and to exhort about your true grace, but also to pass your true grace along to us through the living and active word of God. So we pray that you would uh, make that real to us, allow us to experience it in a way that transforms the the way that we walk and allows um, us to reach into the world around us and speak and teach and live out uh, the true grace of God uh, in a world that is dark. Let us submit ourselves to it so that it will uh, come in uh, and change us, that you will come in and change us through your spirit. And we pray that as we receive our offering, that you would bless it, that you would bless our, the work of our hands, um, give us joy in it, um, both giving and receiving, and that you would be honored as we do both. In your name we pray.